Mortgage Insider is back with a brand new series. I'm Tony. And I'm Claire. And we're both business development managers at Barclays. We'll be speaking to a range of experts to explore success stories and new trends. And of course, we'll be adding our own decades of experience to the mix. In this episode, we're exploring how we can improve the world of work and the lessons we can take away from the pandemic. We'll also examine how this applies to the broking industry specifically. We spoke to Bruce Daisley, who's been looking at different ways of working for the last 20 years. He has a podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Yes, I think this one uh, really resonated with me personally, Claire. I know looking at what we've been through over the last couple of years and perhaps a little bit around the psychology of uh, stress and, and how that links to creativity and burnout. What were your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I could have, you know, this podcast has been two hours long and we just still had questions. So it's a fantastic interview. So here it is. Hi, Bruce. A uh, very warm welcome to today's podcast. Thank you so much, Tony. And hi, Bruce. Very glad that you can join us this morning. Let's start off with a general question. So what are the main issues facing the world of work in 2022? Well, I mean, look, it's such an extraordinary couple of years of change. And, and actually, the, the really interesting thing is that we, we've only really, after two years of talking about it, we've only really just started the actual implementation of the change. But obviously, I think for the first time, we've put use to the technology that we've spent the, the last couple of years developing um, we, we've had all this marvellous technology. It's transformed how we order cars, uh, cabs, how, how we order shopping, how we get things delivered to us. But really until this global pandemic, it hadn't really changed the way we were working to a massive extent. And so I think it's just the first time that we've set about trying to implement that. And look, it's it's just fascinating for me to see the differences that different firms at different organisations are setting about doing really. And do you think the pandemic reinforced what you already thought about the world of work or did it bring in new insights, thoughts? Did you think that, I mean, obviously we've all had to learn something different and new, but do you think there was something particular that this has brought out that's related to sort of remote working? The really interesting thing for me is it sort of swept away vanity a bit. It swept away the hubris of some firms who try and pretend they have all the answers. So I'll give you a specific example. You know, Apple and and uh, Google, big technology companies who, if we're sitting there with our families on a Sunday dinner and we're chatting about things, we presume that th- those big tech firms have got all of the answers. And, and, and actually, I spent 12 years working in big tech firms and I can tell you that they, they resolutely don't. They, they, they really don't have any of the answers that anyone else has. Whereas in contrast, some of the companies that are maybe more humble, more half, you know, willing to concede that they don't have all the answers. I have really been inspiring. I I was dealing, I've I've dealt with probably 70 different firms during the course of the pandemic, sort of helping, advising, just, you know, directing them towards things. And, um, you know, I dealt with two London councils. One of those London councils said, until the moment of the pandemic, they had no way for people to work from home. They had no laptops, they had no access to files. They sorted that out in a month. And I think it just was such an energizing transformation that they realized, wow, we're, we're able to do far more than we ever believed possible. And this this energized transformation had actually liberated them. They told me, you know, this was a year ago now that they advised me this, but they said, we've got three big 
buildings in London, and we're going to get rid of one of them. Either we're going to sell it, it's a, a good bit of real estate, or they're going to convert it into housing for, for their tenants. And it's, it's so interesting that, you know, the big tech firms are getting things wrong, trying to make pronouncements. And it's the humble firms. It's the firms who are saying, OK, we don't know the answers, but let's try and work this out. That seem to be, I, th- I think, capturing the spirit of the moment, really. It, absolutely. And I, I mean, linking into that, then, Bruce, what you've said there, and, and it, it's probably asking quite a lot. I know you've, you've sort of been in business for 20 years and you've got 20 years of research from, from all that experience. Um, but if you were to try and sort of narrow it down, what would you say has changed the most now? in the world of work. And I guess it's going to link to the pandemic a little bit, but, but what are the biggest lessons that you would say you, you can you can draw from that? I think the biggest thing is that the no, this isn't evenly distributed. I was, um, I was having a look last week uh, at the book charts and the business book charts. And still in the business book charts is that book, Who Moved My Cheese? And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this book. Yeah, I remember, it's, yeah. It's Absolutely. a passive-aggressive fable uh, designed that bosses would normally buy. It's about these, these two mice um, who, one... Uh, isn't prepared to accept that their cheese has moved. And the other one, this nimble, agile one, realises there's plenty of cheese if he just looks for it in a different place. And it's a passive-aggressive way to tell workers, listen, you, we're downsizing, you better get used to it. That's broadly the message. And uh, the interesting thing about it is that bosses used to buy it to say to workers, look, change is an inevitable, you, you've got to accept this. Well, the really interesting thing about what's happened in the course of the last two years is that the, the audience who's been left less willing to a change have actually been the management class have actually been you know any anyone who finds themselves in a position of seniority who's maybe slightly um, more experienced generally when we look at the research they're the group who are finding it less comfortable you know they liked having their team around them they liked having workers sitting near them they were comfortable with going to the office every day and they were in a tradition it strongly reminds me actually of another thing that happened there was a really interesting experiment done by an Australian bank uh, New Zealand bank actually uh, introducing a four-day week and they introduced this four-day week um, and one of the things that they found so they introduced that people to enhance productivity, they were allowing their workers to do all of their work in four days, not five. What they discovered was half of the older male uh, employees didn't tell their wives they were working a four-day week. I love they, it. They would, <laughs> they would either play golf on Friday morning or they would sort of come into town, have breakfast together and then go out to a long, boozy lunch together. And they half of the older work, male workers didn't tell their wives. And, uh, and, um, and I think, you know, these just interesting illustrations for us, I think. What we find when we look at the research, we find that younger workers have been... Probably of all the groups, the ones who've been less enamoured by working remotely, they, they haven't necessarily had the best facilities. If you're in a, a flat chair with, with two other people, suddenly the decision you made to take a spare room suddenly becomes like th- this thing that creates your whole social uh, and, and domestic life. And so you know it has, it has a big bearing. But generally what we discover is the, almost every group, with one exception, has really enjoyed the benefits of, of hybrid work and remote working. And the, the exception group is, is bosses, is leaders. 
generally people who had maybe their own office space themselves. Um, but yeah, that, that's the one that's the one exception. So, you know, if you say sort of what's the surprising thing, I would say that, look, this is isn't evenly distributed. Now, the interesting thing about that means that, you know, we all operate in a market. So we're all part of a job market. And it means that sometimes the instinct that we've got to think, okay, well, I preferred it the old way, or I, pref- I, I know what works. Our instinct might not necessarily be the best guide to attracting the next generation of workers. So I think, you know, this is the instinct that I, I, I've worked with a couple of, of big financial institutions. And they told me, look, you know, by hook or by crook, we're getting everyone back to the office five days a week. And my response to them was, by all means, you know, feel free to be fully capable of calling your own shots. But what you might find is in 12 months, you're struggling to hold on to your existing workers or you're, yeah, or you're struggling to hire new workers. And as a consequence of that, you might have to back down in a position of weakness. So I said, look, you know, just be careful. I think right now it's a time for experimentation. What you might want to do is just experiment and see what happens, maybe test out different working styles with different teams, but be careful to set yourself up with a humiliating climb down in 12 months time. Yeah, some great, some great points. I certainly like the idea of the four day week and uh, <laughs> Friday playing golf. No, I can, uh, I can, sure Tony, you won't get away with that one in your home. I can assure you. <laughs> that, that, that's the issue, isn't it? The yeah, audacity of to that. Cover that. Imagine that packing your sandwiches every day. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> briefcase stepping out the door. Busy day today, love. <laughs> Yeah, you, you I, think you're right. I think when, when, when that finally comes out, I'll, I'll be on a no day week. You're, I think. Yeah, exactly. You know. You'll have a long list of things yeah. to do. I can assure you, Tony. <laughs> Your partner's saying yeah, you've but... got a good suntan. Where's this? Where's this? Yeah. All, all this colour coming from? <laughs> <laughs> no, but some great points. Some great points there. Definitely. So we know, really. I mean, the legacy of the pandemic on the workplace culture. We can see it starting to to come about now. And I certainly know that from speaking to some of the business leaders that we have across um, our companies, some of them are are just not sure how they would manage their staff, I suppose, in, in such a different way, in the fact that they're just not used to having them working remotely at home. And I know you do touch on that in some of the podcasts that you've done previously. So, you know, what do we think that legacy is going to look like? How how would our brokers, I suppose, start to think about how they can manage their staff, you know, in that remote way? Well, this is a real strange paradox that has run through a lot of a lot of these management instincts that, you know, a lot of firms have got an idea or a lot of managers specifically have got an idea in their head that they, you know, workers need to be alongside each other. They need to, you know, that's the culture that's always worked. And yet on the, yeah, on the flip side, I've sat in several real live conferences in the last few months where, you know, they've presented the fact that they've just had two good years of business and yet people have been working in this remote way. And yet they still say, thingies, our workers need to be near, near each other. And you just presented with this evidence that says, absolutely, there's some things that seem to be enhanced by being near each other. But the idea that we need to do it all the time, every day, actually, more than anything else, I think the, the thing that workers are taking exception to is the unproductive loss of commuting time. You know, if you've learn in the last couple of years that actually you've you've got your job done you've really got your job done you've nailed it yes you've definitely missed your colleagues 
having a couple of days a week in the office with colleagues is actually something you're looking forward to. You know, it's, it's, it's adding sort of a social element to what you're doing. But you've got rid of those frustrating hour every morning that you were dashing around, getting kids somewhere or commuting somewhere. And, and you've got rid of that painful hour at the end of the day where you may be stuck in traffic or you're stuck in the tube home. And you've, we've eliminated six hours of unproductive time from, from everyone's week every week. You know, in a, in a world of scarcity, that, or 10 hours, um, that, that's, that's sort of a really productive uh, saving. And so as a consequence, I think, you know, what what we probably need to do is park some of our prejudices aside and say, look, you know, so the, for the first time, I think it forces us to answer the question that we've not necessarily answered in the, the last 15, 20 years, which is how do you measure someone's productivity? How do you measure if someone is doing a good job? And because we've never really especially in knowledge work, about 70% of people describe that they work in a team to some extent. These, you know, these collaborative, these collaborative results to most people's work, you know, it's an assisted win when we, we win a new contract, a new deal or whatever. It's other people have played a part. It's often difficult to pinpoint the productivity of, of certain individuals. However, if we can do that, then you start being liberated. It, it starts begging the question, if you've got someone working for you and this person does half of the work but achieves three times the results, is that a good employee or not? Well, you know, our instinct is because we're so driven by presenteeism, we're so driven by, you know, a, a sort of rule of fairness that our instinct is to say that's not, that's not okay. That person who's doing 15 hours a week who's delivering three times as much in total as the person doing 45 hours a week, that's not fair. Whereas actually, for the first time, we start thinking you know what, that's just how it works. And if someone is way more productive, then by all means try and drive them to achieve even more. But actually measuring people's outputs is probably the really critical part. And as soon as we, we sort of free ourselves from that, it's a mental constraint that we've got, I think. As soon as you free yourself from that, then you think, okay, well, actually now we can we can make hybrid working work more effectively. Yeah, and I think um, on that point, Bruce, it's quite interesting that that you mentioned that because you mentioned about the the sort of commute in the morning and and you know the commute at the end of the day, which, which sort of potentially can save two, three, four hours, perhaps depending where you're travelling from. I think um, on that productivity piece, it, what what does your research show about productivity in terms of the working from home uh, versus being in the office? Because I know if if I look at perhaps more. Uh, of, of a you know a, a, from a personal point of view there's a danger sometimes perhaps of starting a little bit earlier in the morning so I think perhaps I can instead of starting at eight or nine o'clock if I start at seven o'clock I can get ahead of the curve I can do more emails I can finish a little bit earlier and sometimes that that doesn't always happen and, and <laughs> still there perhaps, at five o'clock I, yeah. I shouldn't <laughs> lean on the word sometimes because very often it doesn't happen you know I end up working a little bit longer in the day and you know my eyes start to close as as, as we get to the end so you know things like lunch hours you know building th- those in which um, you know working in the office you you have a but perhaps have a predetermined lunch hour um, and and you know how, how do you think that be hit from a behavioral point of view linking to the well-being and 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 you know, how would you say that has, has has changed and perhaps even needs to change a little bit more? Yeah, there was um, I was just trying to, to find it while we were talking there. There was uh, there was a piece of work done a few weeks ago by 
a, a panel, I think London School of Economics ran a panel of economists and they, they asked a hundred really eminent economists to evaluate the overall effect of remote working. And they were, they were deeply ambivalent on productivity. They, they believed that productivity would be about the same, but they believed that employee satisfaction would be higher because commute time was, was eliminated. And so, you know, I think, for example, when we were in the, the pandemic, well, if we're properly going to measure productivity, it's meant to be output divided by time. And so the fact that people were working, as you said there, two or three hours longer every day, they might be achieving more. But if they're doing it over more time, strictly speaking, that's not an increase in productivity. So, you know, their total output of might, might have gone up, but it was it was at the expense of burnout of the expense of people working more so i think you know i'm i'm interested in what the economists say there that they say overall they don't think it's going to be uh better for productivity but that might not mean that uh it's it's ruled out it just you know it's we we probably need to sell it more accurately because interestingly i think in some of the the work of that you've done before that i've listened to you, you've also mentioned that it can have an impact on creativity as well linking to that can't it where you know, the longer that you work, it, it can, it, and, and and we were talking about it before where you, I know in one of the ones you've mentioned about Charles Dickens and the way he used to write his books and he'd work five hours in the morning and then he'd go for a long walk. And they were the sort of things, you know, do, doing the same thing for 10 or 12 hours, you know, that that's, you know, I, I agree your point on dividing it by the time, but actually it's the effectiveness then, isn't it, of, of, of you know, yourself as a, whether you're self-employed or as an employee, within that business. It's really interesting. You mentioned before, Tony, that, you know, like you sort of, you, your brain was switching off yeah, when yeah. You, you were sort of feeling exhausted. There's a really interesting experiment that often most of us don't do, which is trying to measure actually how much our brains can do. There's a little plug-in that you can get for Chrome called Pomodoro. There's loads of these. It's based, the Pomodoro technique is a an old productivity technique technique that used to be based on pomodoro it was the it's name of tomato it's it's those anyone who's old enough will remember those tomato shaped kitchen timers they used to get a tomato one or an egg one occasionally you'd see them and the idea of the pomodoro technique is you use that timer or now you use the chrome plugin that does it and what it, what it does is that you work for 25 minutes when the timer goes off, you're allowed five minutes to do whatever you want. But during this 25 minutes, you cannot be distracted. You cannot have any interruption. There's no Facebook. There's no Daily Mail website. There's like there's, there's no sort of way to to uh, channel your your work other than 25 minutes of hard work, then five minutes off. And that's you've achieved when you do that. You've achieved one Pomodoro. Now, let me tell you this. If you sit down to work on something, you might have paperwork to do or a document to write or something to read. Once you've done one Pomodoro, two, three, four, five, if you ever get to eight, which is less than four hours work, you feel absolutely spent. You know, you, honestly, I, I've done it. I've been trying to write something for the last year. And honestly, like you say at the start of the day, I'm going to work eight hours today. You get to <laughs> eight Pomodoros, which is literally four yeah. hours work with like those five minute breaks. And you feel like, wow. I can do emails, but just anything that requires concentrated thinking is really hard. And it's the point you mentioned about Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens effectively worked out the same thing. Charles Dickens used to get up, used to work for five hours in the morning. That was it. Once he'd done five hours, he was done for the day. He, he used to go for long 10-mile walks. He used to you know, fill his day with other things. But he knew that basically once he'd 
burnt through his productive thinking. Uh, it's it got all the work done he could do. It's really interesting. We never treat our brains like that. We never treat our brains as like finite. And so as a consequence, you'll no doubt, we all find ourselves sitting at six o'clock in the evening, seven o'clock in the evening, trying to read that long email from Dave. It's taken me four attempts. Four attempts, you've gone to get a a cup of something or a glass of something to try. You know, you can't take it because your brain is far more exhausted than you think. And and we never treat our brains like that. We've got this sort of this mythical idea that our brains are infinite. We can keep working. It, our work at t- 9 p.m. is as good as our work at 9 a.m. All completely illusions. Um, but I think it, the more we confront the truth about how, how our brain works, then you can optimize around it. So once you say, actually, I feel done for the day. Right. It's really good benefit for you then when you do feel done for the day you know late afternoon or whatever calling it a day is much better for your energy levels the next day and your and your your concentration the next day and what you find of course is that all of us when we come fresh to something eight in the morning it feels far easier to get it done than if you come to it sort of 8 p.m wearily and on the sofa (laughs) <laughs> it's true I mean linking to Tony saying the long days I, I you know I work from home and luckily have had hybrid working previously because I have two young children to balance and and I know very much that sometimes I have to fit a lot into a short period of time which links very much with what you've been saying already so I think as you say it's it's empowering to think that maybe from this pandemic the world has changed and we can see that do you see that linking on sort of for Tony's question that this has a different impact for men and women going forward yeah no doubt and you know we look one of the big arguments in favor of of flexible working was created by women I did this really interesting um, piece of research probably best part of 12 months ago now with um, some firms in Australia but what happened was they, they briefly went back to the office about 12 months ago and someone got in touch with me. I run a newsletter on sort of all of these things. Someone got in touch with me and said, look, in Australia, you need to publish your gender diversity at every level of your company. And what we found is that when we correlated it, when we correlated the gender diversity with the return to work policy, it was almost a straight line. The more gender diverse, the more women who had who were in the firm or women who were in positions of authority, uh, seniority, the more women represented, the more likely that the firm was to have some degree of flexibility. It was the male-dominated firms who were demanding people were back to the office five days a week. It was like, it was such an interesting uh, bit of evidence. And I think what it forces you to do is to say, wow, flexible working is a diversity and inclusion issue. You know, if you're sitting there and maybe people are saying to you, we're not diverse enough or, you know, the world's changed and, and our workplace doesn't look like the the city that we work in right now. One of the things you might have to say to yourself is, OK, well, is there anything we can do to adapt our policies that might make us more welcoming and might make us more able to increase our female representation at a higher level might make it more able for us to hire people from different backgrounds so you know I think flexible working is a diversity and inclusion issue just based on the evidence we see on it thank you very interesting Uh, so Bruce looking at some parts of the broking industry certainly the the environment that we work in it can be regarded a little bit uh, as quite old-fashioned and probably after 30 years personally of working working in the business I could probably lean into that a little bit but um, what what can the broking industry learn from other industries for example the tech industry you know and what you've been involved in 
I think right now the, the overall lesson for anyone thinking about the future of work is there's no shame in saying you don't have the answers yet. So, you know, as I mentioned before, the one thing that the tech firms have produced a misstep over is to to sort of say, here's our new policy, here's what we're doing. And what they've discovered is workers have said, we're still not ready for that. I've been really interested to see the firms who say, look, for the next six months, we're just going to try things out. In fact, I did some work with a retail firm, a British retail firm, very sort of long history firm. And they'd said to me, look, for the last 20 years, for for the last however long, we've been trying to change our culture. And in fact, we've changed it more in the last two years than we we have in the preceding uh, decades. And so they said, um, we don't necessarily have the answers of what's coming next. We don't want to mess up the, the progress we've made. And so they've just invited their teams to make suggestions what they want to do. They had 60 different suggestions. Of some, some teams said, we work much better when you know we're part of a design studio. We want to be together in the office. Other teams have said, look, you know, we actually have really enjoyed the rhythm of this. We want to work fully remote. And the firm said, great, all of these are correct. They're all experiments. Tell us how you're going to measure them and uh, let's come back in three months, six months, 12 months and discuss what worked. And let's work on the basis that we'll, we'll stick around with anything that worked. But anything that didn't work, we're going to review it. Right, really simple. Because more than anything else, a lot of workers are scared that somehow something's going to change without their input and their consultation. And, you know, a lot of people I went to, I did an event for a big uh, chartered accountants firm uh, just in around October, November, when we were briefly allowed out. And then but it was a, I was in a big um, conference hall and someone stood up. The chief exec was taking questions and, the, and someone stood up, bloke in his late 30s. And he said, look, you know, I've had the best year's work of my career. We're just in tr- we've achieved incredible results. But also, I've got to tell you, I've had the best domestic life uh, year of my. Uh, of, he said, "You know, I've got to know my kids' names." <laughs> yeah. uh, I've, I've, <laughs> I've got. It's true. It's so I've had, true. I didn't really. I didn't even realise I had kids. <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, I've, um, I've had, you know, a few family meals. I've developed new. I, I've like, I've really loved my home life. Which things have felt richer. He said, "The idea that I've got to go back to precisely how it was before just feels unjust." We've achieved really good results. And the guy said to the chief, he said, he said, I'm not going back to the way it was. And if that means I'm leaving here, then fair enough, because I've seen a better life. Now, what this guy wasn't, he wasn't a saboteur. He wasn't trying to damage the company. He wasn't trying to, through sort of guerrilla warfare, bring this woke prickly battle to, to his workplace. He's just saying, actually, I've recognised that I can do my job in a different way. And I feel inspired by it. And I think that's like the interesting lesson of this is like, you know, an open mind to, okay, we don't necessarily know how this is going to end up, but an open mind to if you see good intention from people and you're able to measure that it's productive and successful, by all means, you know, lean into that. And I think that's the lesson, really. I think that's a really good tip for an employer. And as an employee, um, you know, what Sir Tony and I talking there about sometimes our days being very long and, and literally propping our eyes open at the end of it. So as an employee, what what could we be doing as well to to help sort of the steps and the journey and make ourselves more productive, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, th- I think it's... Um, 
it's being honest about productivity. You know, we often think productivity is just working all the time. And, you know, so actually, the more you understand that your brain is like the battery on your phone, that your brain is finite, then what you start saying is, right, okay, I've got four really important things to do. I'm going to try and get them sorted in the morning. Maybe you do, maybe where you've got a choice, you move some of your meetings to the afternoon or the morning, whichever you prefer. You know, if you've got a chance to schedule things, you say, oh, is there any chance we can put that? Because maybe your brain's not firing as fast in the afternoon, but it's good, sociable. Um, I often think, you know, we should be a bit more intentional about working, where we're working and how. So what a lot of people say, I was with someone last week, a lot of people say, Mondays are really productive for me because it's just, you know, status meetings, check-ins, catch-ups, where I call these convergent meetings, where effectively everyone is agreeing on something. Everyone's converging on, we know what the plan for the week is. We know where we are versus the numbers, whatever. You're converging. There's other meetings that kind of work better when you're face-to-face. And I, I call these divergent meetings where there's a lot of different opinions. You'll know this, you know, if you're having a discussion about the plan for next quarter or the, the plan for next year, and often the, the secret of leadership, the secret of sort of management is that you can read the room, you can read when Fiona hasn't said something for 20 minutes, when, you know, actually there seems to be a bit of reticence. Now, those divergent meetings are probably better face-to-face. And then it gives you this clear thing that you're not doing hybrid meetings are maybe the worst of all worlds because you've got three people in the room. You've got everyone else is like these big moon-shaped faces on the wall. And, and, and like, oh, you know, no one can hear what's going on. Everyone's frustrated that they've made the journey into town to see the inside of, of Graham's <laughs> spare room it's like hang on well what if he's dialing in why can i dial in yeah. and so actually but if you say right here's what we do we're having all of our big you know quarterly meetings marketing meetings whatever they are in person they're all go- always going to be second tuesday of the month whatever it is you're making the best of both options i think so you know that's what i would say for employees think about boundaries think about optimizing for for when's the best time for you don't try and be working all the time but think about how you can make best use of what you've got it's really, I mean, we could talk to you, Bruce, for another hour, but, but we're not allowed. <laughs> but thank you ever so much for joining us. Tony, was there, I know we've got more questions, haven't we? But I think we'll have to get you back on for another, another session, another time. Absolutely. We definitely will. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was Bruce Daisley. Please rate, review and subscribe. Or follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch, email us at mortgageinsider at acast.com. I'm Claire McPhail. And I'm Tony Rimmer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>